Welcome to the Let's Talk Government podcast, a podcast that is provided for you by the Department of Government at Minnesota State University, Mankato, located in Minnesota in the United States. I am your host, Dr. Pat Nelson, the chairperson of the Government Department. I want to thank you for joining us as we explore different topics about government. Some may be surprising to you and some may not, so please enjoy. Welcome to episode 13 of the Let's Talk Government podcast. Today, we are going to talk about comparing police response to demonstrations. I'm joined by two faculty members from the Minnesota State University Mankato Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice Programs, Dr. Thor Dolly and Dr. Carl LaFada. You will recognize them from some earlier podcasts. So thank you for joining me today. Let's start by talking about the different responses that can be clearly compared. I'm going to provide kind of a brief overview of the Black Lives Matter protest on June 1st, 2020, and the Capitol riot in, on January 6, 2021. On June 1st, 2020, a crowd of similar size to those that gathered um, for the storm in the Capitol protest gathered outside the White House to protest after the police killing of George Floyd. They were a diverse group who called for an end to police brutality and racial inequity, and an army of federal agents assembled after Trump demanded a show of domination sent them running with chemical agents and rubber bullets. There were 289 arrests that day, and this, this show of force occurred before the 7 o'clock curfew that was set by the Washington, D.C., on January 6, several hundred supporters of President Trump charged inside the Capitol to overturn an election. They were mostly white and they roamed freely through the halls, taking selfies and stealing souvenirs, smashing doors and defacing statutes amid sporadic calls to hang Mike Pence and do other violence to lawmakers, as well as assaulting police officers. There was advance notice for both the storming the Capitol and the Black Lives Matter protest but there was definitely an inequitable police response. So I'm gonna turn over to Carl to start off with, what do you think of the police response in both of those incidents? And then we'll go to Thor. Okay, well, the police response in both of those incidents were obviously widely disparate. Um, when you look at the picture of the National Guard uh, soldiers that were along the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, uh, you know, in their gear with helmets and glasses and masks, you know, looking very, um, obviously a very forceful presence. And then you look at the the modicum of police protection that was afforded to the Capitol uh, the second day, you can tell that one group was seen as uh, more of a threat than the other. And, you know, when you hear news people uh, or political pundits or whomever trying to compare the Black Lives Matter protests and the uh, protests, uh, which later turned into an insurrection at the Capitol on, on January 6th, um, it's really a false equivalency. When you really break it down and look at what both groups were trying to accomplish, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter anti-police brutality protests, it was generally peaceful protests. Uh, people that were basically protesting what they consider to be the unchecked use of government sanctioned force against people of color. And the insurrectionists were largely members of, and this is established, far right, white supremacist, extremist groups, hate groups. Their members were basically angry about what? Well, about the changing face of America, the prospect of people who look like them losing power. And so, you know, completely divergent, uh, you know, 
uh, groups of people that were treated in very different ways. And as opposed to condemning the insurrection, you had people that were saying, but what about the Black Lives Matter protests? And what about the riots and, and this and that? And yeah, there were particular instances of violence in places like Minneapolis and other, where, uh, other places. But even Attorney General Barr, former Attorney General Bill Barr, said uh, that those instances were committed by outside agitators with an agenda. And in Minneapolis, for example, you had uh, the arrest of a Boogaloo Boy member from uh, Texas who was arrested for firing shots at the MPD uh, third precinct. And for those of you who don't know, the Boogaloo Boys is an anti-government, anti-police organization. Um, and so, you know, you have uh, one group is, is essentially uh, looked at as, as needing to be kept in its place. And the other group uh, looks like, you know, a group that was essentially escorted to, to the, uh, to the Capitol. Um, and then things went to heck. You know, I have video uh, for one of my classes of the Capitol uh, officers, some of the Capitol officers taking selfies with the insurrectionists, have another one where the Capitol officer opened the gate for the insurrectionists. And then you juxtapose that with the Australian uh, news cameraman who uh, was filming the clearing of, of Lafayette Square for the Trump photo op where he held up the Bible like it was, you know, some sort of penalty card in a soccer match. And, uh, you know, this, this officer strikes the cameraman with his shield. And as a police officer who, and a former state trooper who uh, has worked many of these, these types of incidences uh, as a supervisor, on a squad leader, I was infuriated by, by that and uh, the disparity in general. Dr. Dolly, what do you think about the responses? What do you see? Well, it's hard not to be a little bit angry, you know, watching, it's hard not to put yourself in that place after working in law enforcement, especially at the Capitol, how poorly prepared they were in a and uh, how intelligence was ignored. Both events were known ahead of time that they were going to occur. It's pretty hard to avoid uh, seeing the political motivations of the responses. The first was driven by rhetoric from the government saying that these protests were dangerous. And the second was essentially ignoring the danger and suggesting they weren't dangerous. That, that there were offers of assistance from other agencies to the Capitol Police that were ignored prior to the, that the attack on the Capitol. Um, I suppose you could suggest they didn't expect that it would go that far. I'm sure most people didn't, but intelligence suggested people were coming there armed and prepared to take action. And the, 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 the look of the protesters seeing what they were carrying and then the encouragement from the, the president all suggested this was gonna be much more serious than they might've initially thought. So, but even from a police perspective, we'd like to think our politics don't get involved in the decision-making process. But in this case, it was pretty clear that that was the case, that it was minimized for one group and the other group was suggested to be substantially more dangerous than anything that had anything that was really suggested to be likely. You know, and I think it's important to note that the three of us have professional experience. And I, I can probably speak for all three of us by saying we've both we've been part of both incidents that pop up unexpected riots, um, damage to property after a specific incident that wasn't planned. And we've also responded to things that were planned. Uh, for example, the Republican National Convention that was held in uh, St. Paul 
I, I was training for that for months and we were on standby. So what we are really talking about is response to a planned known incident. It's not like nobody knew the story in the Capitol was going to happen, happen. And that's also why I picked the fourth day of the Black Lives Matter. So there is intelligence that things are going to happen. I mean, they had chatter online for the storm in the Capitol. Bring your guns. We're going to assault the Capitol. Nobody's better stand in our way. We will have to use violence. We're on the Black Lives Matter side. You did not have that chatter about violence, although there might have been some outliers. Um, so let's talk about breaching the Capitol. I mean, how how is the breaching of the Capitol with the group that did that different than the surrender of the third precinct in Minneapolis during the protests after the George Floyd death? What do you see from your perspective on that? What's the difference? I think one was intentional, the, the, the allowing the third precinct to fall in Minneapolis was seen as possibly uh, reducing the tension between the groups by giving them that as a sacrifice, so to speak, whereas in the situation with the Capitol, that was obviously impossible. They couldn't just, you know, give it away. Now, as Dr. Lafada had mentioned, there was evidence that some officers allowed people into certain areas, but I watched many videos where the police battled valiantly during that protest, but because of uh, a lack of preparation and poor leadership, they were put in a position where all they could do was essentially delay things for a time. In the case of the third pre precinct, my argument would be they could have prevented it had they chose to, which could have led to some confrontation, but that in the end, allowing that to take place didn't improve the situation. Well, and I think also what, uh, you know, you see at the Capitol versus in Minneapolis is the officers were essentially united against the protesters. In other words, there was a clear and delineated enemy, if you will, and that was the protesters, whereas the Capitol Police essentially were, were divided. You had some, albeit a small number, that were sympathetic to the insurrectionist cause, and you had others that, you know, like the, the officer who was getting crushed in a steel door, the officer who was bludgeoned by a fire extinguisher, the officer who's getting beat down with an American flag, uh, that were the victims of the insurrectionist ire. And so, you know, you have, uh, you know, this, this idea where, um, you know, people who they did not believe initially were going to be uh, aggressors or the enemy all of a sudden became that, whereas I think the, the officers in Minneapolis were primed to see uh, this, this group as being, uh, you know, obviously uh, an, an enemy combatant force, if you will. Also, when they're seen as an enemy like that, I think it, it uh, the behaviors that are allowed or perceived to be allowed seem to expand dramatically, like was previously mentioned, you know, assaulting somebody uh, with very little pause and, and watching some of the videos of the riots and the frustration of police and guard members that were there doing things that are would seemingly outrageous like slashing people's tires se seems to suggest that because they're, they're dealing with the perceived enemy whatever they do is allowable um, the restraint on the other hand at the capitol was i thought remarkable that more lives weren't lost that it didn't get worse than it was because the the potential for damage to well democracy in the government was real. The, the, the vice president was present in the building 
hundreds of congressmen and senators were present. Um, you know, it, it's to me remarkable that it didn't, because of some of the actions of the Capitol Police, they had saved that. But and also the Washington Metropolitan Police. That's really what came in to to stop a lot of that. But um, it could have been much worse. Absolutely. Those those officers who stayed true to their oath and uh, did did their jobs um, and they narrowly averted if you, you know, if anyone reads about uh, how close we came to disaster, the potential uh, taking of hostages, the potential murder of elected officials, we came very, very close uh, to having that sort of thing happen here in the United States. Uh, you know, there's a, uh, you know, this idea that left-wing protesters uh, tend to be more violent. Um, that's not necessarily the case. There's a recent study out of Princeton. They analyzed 13,000 uh, civil disturbances and they they found that uh, police officers responding to things like Black Lives Matter protesters, police brutality protests, uh, those were uh, the police officers in those situations were three times as likely to use higher levels of force or high levels of force than other types of protests and rallies. And so this is no surprise. Um, I got the impression when I heard about the tire slashing uh, by the uh, troopers and the sheriffs in, in uh, the Minneapolis riots that that came completely punitive. And the funny thing was, is uh, they were very, uh, the public information officers were very coy about it. And then, you know, all of a sudden the Canadian uh, global news said, we've got video. Oh, and they had to admit and they said, well, you know, it's not a a common tactic, uh, but we did it because of you know this issue. And so they were trying to make up reasons on the fly. And I can tell you, as a Michigan State Police Trooper, we would respond to I was assigned to the Lansing Post and, you know, multiple uh, over the course of my career, but especially from Lansing because we're centralized. We never, ever slashed a tire ever. And, uh, you know, the, the Canadian news uh, reporters, you know, said that the officers were giggling and laughing when they were slashing these tires. And it turns out they were slashing news media medics and, you know, it wasn't, you know, uh, the, the protesters. Uh, so they had to uh, kind of make excuses for that. And so it really comes down to, you know, looking at, I think, in law enforcement, uh, looking at who is the quote unquote enemy. And when you are challenging their authority to use force or challenging their authority in general, uh, you start getting into that contempt of cop area where, you know, well, how dare you? And the idea is, you know, well, I'm going to use this amount of force necessary that I see as appropriate, as opposed to what, you know, their training would indicate. And the last thing, that I'll say is to, to that point is the New York uh, Police Department was just sued by the New York State Attorney General for uh, using excessive force during the summer protests. And NYPD's response, and I'm paraphrasing here, was, um, by the way, let me back up. When you have that type of lawsuit, you have to prove a pattern in practice. In other words, this is an ongoing thing. And NYPD's response was, well, you know, they didn't debate that what they did was brutal or that it was excessive. They just said, well, you didn't prove pattern in practice, so your, your lawsuit has no merit. They didn't defend themselves and their actions. They said, well, you, didn't just, you just didn't prove pattern in practice. Well, something else that I think both of you kind of brought up is that perception of disparity and actual disparity that happens. Because when we look at the two incidents I brought up with the Black Lives Matter protest and the storming the Capitol, you know, you had 289 arrests after the Black Lives Matter protest. That's arrests. People are handcuffed. They're processed. They're charged. You know, they're either charged and released or they're held in jail that same night. Where if we look at the actual arrests that take took place after the storming the Capitol, there were very 
very few that left the Capitol in handcuffs. It's been a lot of after the um, after the event arrests and going back and finding them. Um, so there is a perception of disparity there. Um, I don't know if they didn't have the resources or not. They probably did to arrest at the storm in the Capitol and just did not do that at that point. Um, another thing that this brings up is jurisdiction issues, right? Uh, the storm in the Capitol, the Capitol Police is the primary police force for that. The D.C. Metro Police did not come in until the officer involved shooting at three o'clock and the National Guard was much later. Um, we saw this in Minneapolis, too, where they kept saying, well, why didn't they call in the National Guard earlier? Why didn't they call in other agencies earlier? And there is a lot of complexity with jurisdiction. So uh, how, how do you think jurisdiction might play into this? How does political, uh, I don't know, political presence of chiefs play into this? What do you think about that, Thor? You've been a chief. How would that be impacting the decisions they're making about responses? I think in some cases, it may be that they're afraid to ask for help or don't want to be perceived as not prepared or unable to take care of their own business by asking for help. Um, but most agencies, jurisdictions have uh, mutual aid agreements we did uh, with agencies that surrounded us knowing that there were going to be times where we couldn't handle a specific event and when we would have something like a riot no single agency is generally going to be able to handle that capital police are a little bit different it's a small geographic area with a relatively large department but when a significant event occurs they're typically going to involve other agencies in this case they didn't do that it's a little bit hard to understand why uh, as far as calling in the National Guard, that's not so simple as you're, you're not going to, they're not going to respond in a few hours, you know, to mobilize them. Those are people that are coming from all over the state or in the case of Washington, D.C., all over the country. Mutual aid with neighboring jur jurisdictions normally, that's people coming in a, in a matter of minutes. When we had a riot uh, in a neighboring jurisdiction, I was called uh, at home at, I think it was midnight went to the station within an hour, had a dozen other officers to join me, and we all went to the, the, the scene of the riot. So we were there within, an, you know, not within minutes, but within a couple of hours, we had a dozen people that were responding. And so it's, it's a very significantly different, you know, mechanism to, to develop. Now, of course, as time went by and these these Black Lives protests became more common and continued day after day, that is going to allow you to activate the guard. The, the, the difficulty is, is this activation going to make it better or worse? Is a military presence going to make the improve the situation or just make it more confrontational? It's a difficult balance to strike. Um, so I'm not going to suggest that there's a perfect time or a perfect, you know, algorithm that allows you to decide this is how many, this is when, and when to do it. Well, in every state's jurisdiction, uh, jurisdictional laws is, uh, are different as well. So in Michigan, as a state trooper, I could essentially empower local and county officers who are working with me by the very nature of them working at the direction of a state trooper, they had statewide authority. Other states don't have uh, something like that. Um, when you talk to or when, when they when the press has talked to uh, various elected officials uh, about the National Guard response, a couple of things come out. In fact, there was an article in the Military Times talking about how the National Guard in Maryland and the National Guard in D.C. had already been posted up. They were ready to go, but because of the jurisdictional issues, they had to be invited in. Otherwise, they would have no authority to do what they would be asked to do. And so those calls didn't come in. And the chief of uh, the D.C. police or not the D.C. police, but 
but the uh, Capitol Police, um, you know, basically said, I asked for these things, I asked for these resources, and I was denied because, and the, ex the, the excuse of the reasoning that's being used is that the... Um, uh, the people, that's my dog in the background, uh, that people uh, didn't want uh, the, the poor optics of having military present during uh, what was supposed to be uh, or what was billed as supposedly a, a patriotic, peaceful rally. Um, so, you know, you have those issues as well uh, that, that would prevent people from, from engaging. You know, I think we, we definitely in this country have a very poor history of law enforcement handling peaceful protests and violent protests, demonstrations, riots, very differently depending on the part of country you're in, what kind of protest, demonstration, or riot is going on. I mean, you just look at the civil rights marches and the images that come out of that and how that impacts how you respond now and then the militar militarization. I mean, sometimes you can't even tell who is a police officer and who's from the National Guard standing next to each other. But as we kind of get into the last part of the podcast, I'd like to talk about maybe rebuilding or even starting to build um, legitimacy and trust in agencies. Uh, we're hearing reports now that um, up to 10 to 15% of those that were involved at the storming the Capitol were active or former military. We know that there were active and former police officers out there. And the public sees that image of them attacking the Capitol building and then even attacking the police officers there, turning on them. What can what can happen in law enforcement? What can we do in law enforcement to help build some more legitimacy or even start building legitimacy with the public and building trust after these images are what they've seen on the media all the time? I think the first thing is accountability. And that's you're starting to see that in this case. It's obviously going to take time to identify who exactly was there and what their role was and, and where were they. There has to be an investigation. There has to be some due process. But agencies have taken that step now where they're holding officers accountable for their actions there uh, and, and, and during other protests as well. That it, it can't be that you ignore these things. We mentioned the tire slashing. and it, It's unfortunate when an agency tries to gloss over something like that. But the only way you're going to be able to show the public that they can trust the police is if those people who violate the rules, violate other people's rights, are held accountable. And, and to me, that's the first step. Um, the next step is going to be a little bit more difficult. In that, and that's opening that dialogue and 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 this that starts going into that conversation on defunding the police as well you know and, and you've heard me say this in other podcasts and this is kind of my mantra in my diversity class but firm fair and consistent application of the law and if the public perceives that different groups are being treated differently or given preferential treatment um you know the most and if that most obvious reason between the groups uh is something that is obvious that is easy to be seen like skin tone then the police will lose that legitimacy because they're seen as being punitive any use of force any action they take is being seen as punitive to that group as opposed to the actions that optic is lost right um there is a bit of support for what would be considered a socially conservative ideology and i've got my little air quotes i use um positions in law enforcement um, and so there's a little bit of overlap in some of those groups that were present in DC. And this is why you see the thin blue line flags flown by many of these groups at the rallies. And, and, you know, it ties in, you know, the idea that you should 
you know, be afraid of these groups or wary of these particular groups like the Black Lives Matter protesters or those who would uh, dare say that police officers need better training or that the institution of policing needs to be reformed. Um, and so, you know, police officers are taught formally in training and even informally by senior officers what the quote unquote enemy looks like. And so to give you an example, I was co-hosting a diversity training session with uh, Twin Cities Metro Police Agencies and a deputy sheriff in the group, this large group. He says, well, look, I'm just going off of my experience. If I see a group of white males on one corner and a group of black males on the other, I'm going to focus on the black males based on my experience. And so we had to kind of unpack that, you know, because and as it ties into this group or this, this discussion, right, when you're talking about groups of protesters of color, you know, police officers either subconsciously or consciously see them as more of a threat than the people who were at the D.C. protest, because let's be honest, the people at the D.C. protest, which later became an insurrection, look a lot like most of the police officers in the country, you know, white males. And so, you know, it's I, I look at the the response based on, again, that conscious and subconscious fear uh, that is programmed into law enforcement through training, through through history, uh, through, you know, informal measures, uh, you know, senior officers teaching younger officers and just this general, you know, what the enemy or what the bad guy, quote unquote, sort of looks like. Well, I'm going to jump on the political bandwagon for a second and um, kind of ask you guys your perspective. So we know that in law enforcement, we need to t we need as individual officers to remain neutral, right? You might have to protect either side of an argument. So then why do we continue to allow police leaders and police union leaders and police organizers to support individual political can um, candidates? Does that not defeat the purpose of us being neutral and protecting both sides. I'm going to ask your guys' opinions on it. I'll start with my opinion. I think it does defeat it. If we are, if, if our police union is supporting one candidate over the other, that is telling the police um, population, this is who we think is a better choice and the other one is not a good choice. So if the police officer is faced with who do I need to protect more? Who do I need to listen to more? They're probably influenced by uh, what their police union is doing. And I'm not saying police unions are bad. I've been a part of that. I just think that they need to stay out of the political endorsement and campaigning um, arena, if anything. So, all right, I'm going to lay that out there. Who wants to go next on this? I'll jump into that since I have uh, quite a bit of experience with labor unions. Um, I grew up in, in Metro Detroit, so I've been in the UAW and the Teamsters and uh, obviously police unions. And when I served in California, I was also the association president. So uh, I would, even though we were a small organization, I would routinely get asked by uh, candidates for local office or state office, you know, hey, can you endorse me as a candidate? You know, and even if we 100% clicked on their, their policies and positions, I would say no, because, and the excuse was, or the reasoning was, if I endorse you, then we as a department immediately no, uh, we immediately alienate people who don't agree. And even though the association is different from and distinct from the department itself, we are seen as representing all law enforcement. And so this brings me to, you know, the idea of confirmation bias. People in some parts of the country, in some communities, in some cities, think that police are violent, they're racist, they're, they're anti-democratic, right? They're fascist, they're authoritarians. Now, you have a group of people who raided the Capitol. They're anti-democratic, they're fascist, they're violent, they're racist. How can we as law enforcement separate that idea 
when you have the Minneapolis Police Union running around in cops for Trump t-shirts. They say, well, Trump and Trump supporters are this, rightly or wrongly. You saw what happened on January 6th. Police officers are supporting this individual. Ergo, they support the, that same ideology. And oh, by the way, that confirms what I always thought is what they're thinking, right? So if police are smart enough to stay apolitical, stay out of the fray, they would avoid all of that. Policing fought for decades to remove itself from a political era of policing where every time a new politician was elected, they could come in and clean house and get rid of all the officers that were there and replace them with their own. Change chiefs. And what one of the inevitable outcomes of, of that was they tended to have some political influence in the community then on who voted for who, who retained office because they were politically motivated to keep their jobs. When, when policing can't see that there's a danger there of being too close to politicians, it is just as was described, very hard for them to separate themselves when something happens. They're going to feel inclined to, to support one side, the side that they feel is more supportive of them. Historically, when I've also seen um, political support from law enforcement officers or, or agency heads, it's usually a one issue support. It's whoever is suggesting they support policing more or will provide more funding. It's almost like pay for play, you know, I'll help you if you give me this. And it, it, uh, it's not a global assessment of which candidate is better for the constituents. It is what candidate is better, better for me and my organization. And it comes off as a myopic uh, approach that, Many of us, I, I think, look at that and say, well, you're only supporting them because it's specifically benefiting you and not necessarily the greater good. And it's exactly why policing should stay out of politics. They shouldn't be supporting a politician. That's not their job. And it, it ends with a crossover that uh, is dangerous. You know, it's funny you bring up the historical piece, and I always thought it was ironic that law enforcement was started in this country to deal with groups of people who are uh, or who were considered to be problematic. And whether you're talking about, you know, uh, recently freed slaves or you're talking about immigrants or you're talking about organized labor. Uh, my agency, the Michigan State Police, was created in 1917 to break the copper mine strikes up in the Upper Peninsula. Um, and, you know, politicians would use uh, you know, this newfangled law enforcement agency, whichever, you know, state or jurisdiction you're talking about to in part break the strikes and prevent organized labor from basically taking shape. And, uh, you know, they would consider it to be communist. You know, the last line of the communist manifesto was workers of the world unite and, you know, fast forward a hundred years and now police unions, uh, unionized police officers hold this enormous amount of political sway in, um, many parts of the country and uh, they've kind of lost sight of you know that that historical piece and the damage as you said that the political involvement in decisions uh, you know of, of you know who to police and why to police and you know the damage that that can do to the air of legitimacy in a community as as uh, you know we know that that legitimacy if it is lost essentially equates to an inability of a police agency to do its job in its community. And I think that actually kind of just brings us back around full circle is that law enforcement 
is used by politics and politicians, but part of our legitimacy and trust building can be removing uh, the law enforcement endorsement, right? Because we the agencies are controlled by political entities. But one thing that we could do as a profession is take a step forward and say, we're no longer endorsing candidates. That's not what we should be doing as law enforcement professionals. Granted, every individual is going to have their own decisions and they're going to vote and they're going to have preferences, but as a collective, we should not be endorsing politicians or candidates because that also questions our legitimacy. So, well, thank you, gentlemen. I know we could talk on this more and we are seeing some disparities and we need to continue moving forward on how can we help address them? What can we do in the future? And it's always interesting to see our different points of view. So thanks for talking about the responses to the demonstrations and riots. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Government. If you have suggestions for future episode topics or other areas you'd like us to cover, please visit our website at link.mnsu.edu backslash Let's Talk Gov to submit your ideas. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode and thank you for listening. <laughs>